0: Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB 506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. 25th of March, Thursday. Tonight the air is warm and still, and the cabin doors are open. The sounds and scents of a springtime night fill the boat. It's difficult to tell where the boat ends and the night begins. The wind is rising and the clouds are flying, and this is N.B. Erica coming to you from under a full moon. Welcome, and it's great to have you aboard. Well, John Clare's description of March as being characterised by comprising of many weathers is certainly holding true, and that old saying about March coming in like a lion and going out like a lamb is not really working out, certainly tonight. And... While we've had this week some really gorgeous days of strong sunshine and light winds that have been filled with that honey scent of hawthorn blossom, we've also had squally showers and hail, and this morning ice formed on the cratch cover and hard surfaces. And while March is not going out like a lion, it's certainly also not going out like a lamb, Perhaps he's best described as a moderately tetchy goat. And it's these constant climatic changes that John Clare captures so well in that section of the Shepherd's Calendar on March. Listen to this and how succinctly and beautifully he captures it. The insect world now sunbeams higher climb, oft dream of spring and wake. Before their time. Blue flies from straw stacks, Crawling, scarcely alive, And bees peep out on slabs, Before the hive, Stroking their little legs across their wings, And venturing, short flight, Where the snowdrop hings its silver bell, And winter aconite, With buttercup-like flowers that shut at night. And greenly frilling around their cups of gold, Like tender maiden muffled from the cold. And yet only a few lines later he concludes this section with, And butterflies, by eager hopes undone, Glad as a child come out to greet the sun, Lost neath the shadow of a sudden shower, Nor left to see tomorrow's." April flower. And perhaps again this meteorologically quixotic character of March is captured in the names of the full moons. Generally we have a choice of just two or three names, but Ruth Binney records in the Weather Law edition of Wise Words and Country Ways, lists five of them. Worm moon. Sap moon, sugaring moon, crow moon, storm moon. And this bittersweet beauty that John Clare captures for this month of March is something that every one of us who looks at the natural world is familiar with. And here our swan pair have been nest-building, and on Wednesday the first egg was laid. Unfortunately, by Thursday morning it was predated, the top bitten off, and it lay ruined and crushed in an empty nest, and the swans hung around it for all morning, swimming among the reeds or foraging nearby, but staying away from that crushed egg. However, by this morning they were making a new nest, and this one's actually quite much closer to us. Hopefully lessons are being learnt, and the nest has been occupied pretty much continuously all day. And just a moment ago I looked out and I could just make out the white glow of an outline of the swan, lying, head tucked under its wing, sitting on the nest, All day they've been communicating and vocalising in grunts and snorts and strange barking sounds. And when they moved, I caught sight of an egg. I've been putting videos of their progress on social media, on the Nighttime on Still Waters Twitter page and also on the Facebook page if you like to see their progress and keep up with what's happening in their lives. In the wider community, even though those large groups of ducks have now dispersed, and I have not seen the coot for a week or two, the air is still filled with the frenetic duck activity. Walking around, you get that curious feeling of being watched, and when you look a little closer, you see this little pair of eyes watching you from a cabin roof or a well-deck or a stern platform. A duck has begun excavating the planter in the boat next to us. And trios fly low, wind singing through their feathers like the high ringing of tiny sleigh bells. And often it's a male chasing a female and its partner close in pursuit. And they fly with such expert precision. And this morning I watched as one of the male partners caught up with the pursuing male, cut in front of it with expert precision. The pursuer seemed to give up hope, dropped back, returned, solitary. Once, one almost rolled onto its back three or four times, losing height with control stores, cutting the air with scalpel precision. Surgeons of the airways. And sometimes a lone duck, quite often a male, flies overhead, straight, determined, unveering, making soft, chuntering vocalisations. And I can't help but wonder, what is he saying? And to whom? Who is meant to be listening? And for us in our lives... Preparations are going ahead for taking the Erica out of water for blacking. Details finalised. The crane's booked for Wednesday. The hull's going to be water-blasted and blacked. Anodes added and replaced where necessary, and the rudder hopefully will be tag-welded. We're going to have to move from the Erica, as we can't get Penny into her when she's on dry land. And we're not sure how long this process is going to last. So we're staying in a a nearby boat and we're not quite sure of what the internet situation is going to be like. And so sadly, we're not going to be able to do a podcast next week Um, or perhaps if it continues for another week. I'll try to post some pictures anyway on social media and we'll talk about the whole thing when I get back. just want to say a genuine thank you and hello to Carol Ennis. And thank you so much for getting in contact with me and for your very, very kind words. I'm really touched by it. And, and I'm thrilled with the little audio soundscapes that are part of this podcast that you enjoy and make the experience important and significant for you. And I'm also so glad to hear that the podcasts are providing some help and comfort to your friend. And uh, thanks also to Mark Dexter for your really helpful observations and explanation of the Suez Canal incident. Mark's the captain of the 46,000 ton passenger ship that's lying outside Tenerife at the moment. And uh, Mark has also captain ships down the uh, Suez Canal. And so he knows that area well, and he knows the, the hazards and the challenges that that poses. And he's posted a photograph of one of his trips down the Suez on his Instagram page. And I've put the link for those who are interested in the uh, programme notes below. And actually, the the problem that the captain of the stuck vessel had encountered the combination of a strong gusting wind and the bank effect is one that canal boaters will know well, albeit on a, a smaller scale and often without such devastating consequences and certainly not with the whole world watching them. But um, it's something that uh, frequently happens and I think all of us can sympathise with the captain and our hearts go out to him and his crew. And finally, just before I finish this section, a congratulations to the NB Wannabes as they've been celebrating their 32nd wedding anniversary. And I hope that very, very soon now you're going to be out and about and on the canals to celebrate. Congratulations. Oh, and thanks to everybody who contacted me and got in touch to ask about my eye. It's settling down um, I had further examinations to rule out if it was anything serious this week um, and everything seems to be all right. It's still not right, but the eye's adapting and I've been told that that's what's going to be happening. My vision is not impaired really in any way apart from um, the problem that I've been been having. And apparently it's just part of growing old. Um, but, but thank you. I really do appreciate your concern and your comments. And if you do want to get in contact with me about anything, uh, about ideas for future episodes or just to say hello, i would be delighted to hear from you. And you can contact me on the Facebook Nighttime on Stillwaters page, the our Instagram account, or our Twitter account, or at nighttime at Stillwaters sorry, nighttime on Stillwaters dot uh, gmail dot com. Thank you. One of our longest and most regular listeners is Nancy Jean Armstrong over in the states. Hi, Nancy, and I remember you asked me fairly soon after I started the podcasts about whether canals continue to play much of a part in our lives once we as a family moved from the canals into a house and It's a really good question and partly the reason why I I haven't responded to it yet, Nancy, is that I'm still really trying to work it out. It's not really that easy to answer. I I suppose in a simplistic way, I would say no, not much. There were the odd times when Donna and I joined mum and dad for canal holidays and helping with the locks and walks down the towpath. but. I think if you'd asked me four or five years ago, whether canals were an important part of my life, I would have probably said, no, not a great deal. I was interested in them, but it was more in the sort of general sense, if you know what I mean. But that doesn't really tell the whole story because in other ways, canals are certainly woven into the tapestry of my life and particularly my childhood. And I do want to do a couple of episodes in the future where I sort of unpack this a little bit more. But in some respects, canals were always sort of there. They were part of the geography, literally. We moved from the boat to King's Langley and it was then still very much a fairly contained village that straddles a valley and the canal... Runs along that valley floor. And by that time that we had moved there, it was essentially cutting the village in half with the residential part of the village extending beyond uh, the other side of the canal. And the canal was just as much part of the topography and geography of the village as the flint faced church and the elms on the chalky drift above us. And our house was a few hundred yards from the canal itself, bounded by the sunderland's lorry depot and piles of domestic coal. They glittered to a child's eyes more magically than any gold could, because gold never shines like rain on tarmac. And beyond that depot, Behind the little shed at the bottom of our garden lay the canal and the Ovaltine factory. A devastated forest of shiny metal pipework, steam and chimneys, it clanged and whistled, and it smelled sweet of malt and barley, and going to bed when it was night and the curtains were closed, which for a child is not very often. There was a little footpath that was actually the shortcut to the railway station that ran between some iron railings to the canal and over the canal. And the vegetation there was dense and green and shadowy. And the bridge over the river Gade, which was really little more than a bywash here, always struck me as dark and sinister. The overflow from the factory in big bulbous pipes flowed into that little stream. If anything could live in this dark place, it must be truly monstrous. The factory dominated the village. It was the place of employment for so many of us living there. And on the opposite side to the canal was the administrative building, a clean sweep of Art Deco style. Classic. Beautiful. It glowed white when the sun shone and the sky was the colour of old-school chalkboards. And there were monkey puzzle trees in the grounds, bordered the road. And mum said that they were called that because monkeys couldn't climb them and they were spiky and exotic and sang to me of tropical islands and sunshine and comic pirates with sand in their great big boots and treasure chests filled with emeralds and rubies as colourful as wine gums. But I could never really understand why anyone would want to plant a tree that a monkey couldn't climb. And behind those austere, blank, grey windows must be people who had no care for monkeys. And these were the days when the canal was still relatively busy, and the Ovaltine itself had a fleet of boats to service it with coal, although it had stopped operating just before we moved in. And canal side, the factory's walls seemed to grow out of the water, and iron balconies jutted over the canal and aproned and overall workers would lean over the canal, smoking, chatting, waving to us as we passed by on the opposite side on the towpath. And they wore caps that, to my eyes, looked like those worn by the puppets in Jerry Anderson's Thunderbirds. And the dark interiors glimpsed through the open doors behind them, clanked and clinked and whirred. It takes a lot of noise to make a jar of Ovaltine. And although it had stopped operating, I do remember boats from time to time being tied up at the wharf, by which time it had been cleared and concreted over with white concrete, and was clean and shone in the sunlight. And rusty cranes stood to one side. And it was like one of those scenes from Pete Tuffrey's paintings that shouldn't be beautiful, but somehow is. That poetry and romance of reality. And the scene was deserted, but the air was warm and lit by the light of a slanting, westering sun. Apart from through traffic from London to Birmingham and the other cities in the Midlands, Working boats were fairly common, servicing the local industries. Just a mile or so up the canal was John Dickinson's Nash Mill site, famous for producing that very thin paper for pocket bibles, later Basildon Bond stationery. And one of my school classmates lived in the lockkeeper's cottage there, and a bit further up was John Dickinson's main factory in Apsley, an imposing Victorian edifice, strangely anachronistic even then, and for me appealing because of it, a magical Willy Wonker's factory for paper lovers. And just beyond that was Boxmore Wharf in Hemel Hempstead, where Rose's lime juice was. And they were serviced by mustard-colored three fellows company, laden down almost to the gunnels with great big barrels of roses lime juice. And in King's Langley itself, just the opposite side of Lock 69A from the Oval's Heen, was Tuvi's Flour Mill, which was also at one point serviced by its own fleet of working boats. It sat over a foaming tide-race that roared with danger and the lopsided, broken, faded warning signs. And I could hang over the little bridge railings and court death with a cavalier abandon while Mum held my hand. And by all accounts, Tuvis had an uneasy and sometimes rancorous relationship with the canal, but later it settled down. And I think by the time we moved there, boats no longer came to Tuvi's Mill, but Dad will probably remember better than I can. And one winter, the jagged toothed profile of the mill was demolished. One day it no longer stood proud. The landmark of King's Langley. It lurched at a 45 degrees angle and for a while remained there as though its head was bowed in prayer, brought to its knees by a world that had moved on. And then it was gone. And Mill Lane became an anachronism, a lane without the mill that we had decided would have no part in our world. The little narrow lane, overshadowed by trees and steep banks, widened. Gained a pavement. Daylight bleached the deep greenness that once was there. Later, a housing estate grew. But the mill race still roars. And over the time that we lived in Kings Langley, the number of working boats diminished. But the canal remained. The towpath became the shortcut to the station one that avoided the damnation of monkey-repelling trees, or an obstacle to cross over the little humped-back bridge under which the village youths would gather to surreptitiously share cigarette-dog-ends and stories of outrage with that fragile belligerence of adolescence. The cut, that liminal place, that whispered transgressive adventures into a life whose door was still only partly ajar. And if its purpose was changing, it was still literally at the heart of the village. Waterside Stores, the little shop that used to sit at the side of Bridge 158 Water Lane, the main road route to the station, and to Tom's Lane, where some of my friends lived, and up and out over the other side of the valley and the horizon with the big radio mast at the top, and beyond that fields and St Albans, and if you go and go and go, eventually the sea, glittering cold and deep and dark. And the stores, amongst a myriad of other things and sweets and cigarettes and newspapers, sold fishing nets for catching tiddlers and sticklebacks. And we would go in the summer and the spring and the autumn, and even in the winter, to try our luck, serenaded by the sound of water in sluice and dripping from wet lock gates. And in the summer the grass and vegetation grew high and was thick with butterflies and insects, and made your eyes itch and nose sneeze. And so, if the canal became the route for some into adulthood, it also was the path for others to find their place within the true world, our own tamed wilderness. And the canal was as part of our life as the church bells or the ringing of the bell at the end of playtime in the schools. And so to answer Nancy's question, no, the canal wasn't part of my life in a deliberate way. But that was because it was unconsciously so much part of our environment, the geographies of our growing up, the playground and classroom that we all just took for granted. As the wind begins to rise even more, it's time for me to say good night. So this is NB Erica, signing off for now until we can meet again and wishing you all a very, very good and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside 7.2 degrees inside 25 degrees humidity 74% dew point 4 degrees wind direction south southwest wind strength 19 miles per hour Barometric pressure, 1020.3 steady. Cloud cover, 98%. Cloud ceiling, 40,000 feet. Precipitation, trace. Moon phase, 99%. Waxing gibbous. Day length, 12 hours, 39 minutes, sunrise, 18.31, sky casting, 6.50.